Good morning, Three Rivers. Good morning. I'm exceptionally glad you have chosen to be with us today. And uh, am I on? I'm on. Can you hear me now? Okay, very good. I'm glad you chose to be here today. It seems like every Three Rivers person decided to not be at church today. And so we have abundant seating, so if anybody comes in, let them sit by you, it'll be awesome. And so I'm very glad you're here today. Um, I cannot say enough about how important uh, these weeks are as we're studying through 16 verses. 16 verses. And these 16 verses are, as an illustration I gave you a few weeks ago, they're, they're waypoints, they're, they're trees in a very large forest that helps us navigate the forest so that we can actually see the forest and the trees. In other words, these verses are waypoints of the gospel that tie together all the stories of the Bible into one common thread of the gospel, pointing us all to Jesus. There's a little book in the back on the table. It's called 16 Verses. It's the basis of where we're working through. And I made a deal with you. I said that we pay like 11 bucks, $10.99 each book. And we'll sell them to you for five. Because we're not trying to make money. It's not the goal. The goal is to kind of get your buy-in. Because you know when you pay for something, you're more likely to eat it and or use it, right? You know what I'm saying? There's an investment. You're like, I'm going to get my money out of this because I paid money for it. Or, if you'll write me a half-page summary on each chapter. You can email it to me. You don't have to be a word. It can just be an email. Because I want your investment. You can have the book if you don't have five bucks, right? So I'd love for you to get that book. And if you can't write, can't type, don't have an email, nor five dollars, come to me and I'll give you a book, okay? The goal is to get the book in your hand and you actually read it, okay? Does that make sense? So it's an incredible little book called 16 Verses. It's on the back table. Love for you to have that. The whole story of the Bible in 16 verses. Today, we're in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 to 7. Genesis 3, 6 to 7. Adam and Eve reject God's call to be His representatives in His created kingdom. That's the banner that's going to sit over our time this morning. Adam and Eve reject God's call to be His representatives in His created kingdom. Now, I want to say this to you. The notes are available online, but please don't look at them this morning, okay? Do not look at those notes. The Holy Spirit doesn't speak to us in filling in blanks nor in following an outline. You can do that later in the week. Those are for you later. I want you to listen. I want you to tune in. The reality is most of us, books we've read that changed our lives were not the total book. It was a chapter here, a sentence there, a paragraph here, a paragraph there. Most of the time when we've been in a place like this and, and the Word of God is being preached, it, it's not... Filling in the blanks and following the notes. It's a sentence here. It's, it's a moment where the Spirit of God speaks to me in the context of that atmosphere. I don't want you to miss that by following notes. You can look at those later, okay? But they're there for you. They're there for you now. And you go back and look at them later. I want you to hear because today is a pivotal point in the narrative of Scripture. Because we discover that Adam and Eve are going to reject God's call to be His representatives as image bearers. In his kingdom. We've discovered that God created a kingdom. And we see the theme of kingdom introduced in the very first chapter of the Bible. And he is the king. We also see, like we discovered last week, that God has made man in his image to be his ambassadors in his kingdom. And he made a covenant with them. And we we were introduced 
to the theme of covenant, whether it's explicit or whether, whether you heard that explicitly, we're introduced to the theme of covenant, which is going to follow us through the rest of the Bible. God, in His kingdom, as king, creating man in His image, made a covenant in which they were to multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. However, we're going to see today that Adam and Eve reject God's covenant, and they then incur the awful penalty for rejection of God. Sin and death are two nasty twins that go together. The day you eat of it, you will die. Adam and Eve suddenly noticed things about each other's appearance and their own appearance that caused them to want to cover up. They hadn't experienced that before. But all of a sudden they recognize things in themselves and things in each other that make them want to cover up. So they look for some fig leaves and they cover themselves. This is a new feeling. I've never had that feeling before. Strange and, and not real pleasant. They then, they hear God coming like normal to walk with them in the cool of the day. And they felt the new sensation. Kind of like the one they just experienced that made them want to cover themselves, but this one was more intense. And rather than hiding things they recognized about themselves, this sensation made them want to go and hide from God. So what did they do? They go and they hide from God. Adam and Eve now have to be confronted by God. Can you imagine that? Have you been confronted by somebody who you needed to be confronted by? Like they were doing right by confronting you? Not pleasant, right? But necessary? Imagine being confronted by God. Adam and Eve now have to be confronted by God as they are called out of hiding rather than the typical, normal, joyful and playful interaction that they have enjoyed with Him up to this point. This is very different and very hard. They don't feel the same anymore. Not terrible, but worse. Because the awful twins of sin and death have come. Not immediate death. They're still alive. And as God said, the day you eat of it, you will die. So not immediate death, but death nonetheless. Because now God who used to walk with them in the cool of the day joyfully and playfully enjoying their company is distant and cut off. And there's an edge to Him and a harshness they had not heretofore experienced. He doesn't walk with them anymore. They don't hear Him like they used to. And and it seems that their hearing Him is getting fainter and fainter and harder to recognize whether it's Him or not. But God was good to them, it seemed, because rather than kill them, which they rightfully deserve, the day you eat of it, you will die. Rather than kill them, He took one of His creatures that they so often enjoyed watching and marveling over, and He slaughtered it in front of them in their place, For their error, God skinned it, and God made clothing from its skin, and He covered them with that now leather clothing. God did that for them. 
Can you imagine what that sight was like? So I'm a hunter. I enjoy hunting. I don't get to hunt near as much as I would like to. But one of the things I don't enjoy doing is killing. Because it's not normal. A human being that enjoys killing has a very deep emotional problem. Just to be very honest with you. And that's coming from a hunter who likes to hunt and kill animals and eat them because they're tasty. It's not normal because it's not part of created order before this moment. The shedding of blood is not normal. But now, it's a necessity to manage the economic reality of scarcity and in this instance to pay a debt they now owe. It's not pleasant and it never should be. Managing creation, this side of the fall, Genesis 3, and this side of Jesus' return out there, so fall here, this side of it, His return out there, this side of it. Managing creation is intended to remind us of what sin has done and the price it took to begin setting things right again. It should be a reminder that something is not quite right. Can you imagine Adam and Eve watching the happy God of the universe slaughter a creature He just made? Their first taste of death of one innocent creature. Did the creature disobey God? No. Their first taste of death was an innocent creature taking the punishment for their error. We will need to come back to that on the backside. So check that in your mind. That experience wasn't pleasant, I suppose. Death. The day you eat of it, you will die. Cancer. Not many of us in, in this room have been untouched by it. I lost my father to it in 2005. Stroke. Lost my mother to it not too many years ago. Murder. War. Suicide. Physical and mental illnesses of varying degrees. The deaf. The mute. Blind, lame, the economic reality of scarcity, terror, lack of internal peace, broken homes, abuse, hard births. Mortality rate. We all know what's not right, don't we? God's image that is stamped on every human soul contrasts with and recoils at evil 
until we condition ourselves to it. That in and of itself should let us know something's not right. Because you can condition yourself to enjoy evil. Or not recoil at it. Even in sin, man has a sense that something isn't right. So how did we get here? How did we get to that point? I mean, God made a kingdom, right? He's a king. And we read in chapter 1, the first of 16 verses, Genesis 1.31, that He made it and it was very good. And then He made man in His image and made a covenant with them to fill the earth and rule over it as His ambassadors. How did it go that wrong? Well, that's what our passage is about today. Genesis 3, verse 1 to 21. And we're going to focus on our our verse 6 to 7 as the centerpiece there. But we're going to work up to it, hit it, and then finish off at the end of the chapter. So, what do we see? What does it mean? Well, the first unpacking of Genesis 3, we're going to see verse 1 and verse 4 and 5, and we're going to note the root of all sin. The root of all sin. In chapter 2, God has put a tree in the garden, and we don't know why God put it there. The text doesn't tell us. But apparently at this point, there's a clear delineation between good and evil. And God put a tree there, put it in the garden, and He told them what it was. He said, you can eat from everything here. This whole earth is your playground. You are to multiply it, fill it, subdue it. Everything is yours. There's one stipulation. Don't eat from there. And then we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and we read this. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the garden that is in the midst, or the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did He say that? Hmm. No. Lest you die. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The root of all sin. Take note. You can go back and read this. It's in italics for you. The root of all sin is the belief That God is not really looking out for our good and He's holding back the best from us. God is not to be trusted and He does not love me. He can't be be trusted for our complete happiness. We have to go get that ourselves. Did He say? The very first thing we read here is the enemy coming and questioning What God has said. And then questioning about whether or not He's got my best intentions at heart. Because He knows the day you eat it, you're going to know something that you don't currently know and He's holding out on you. There's better to be had. You can't trust Him. 
The root of all sin is a belief that God is not really looking out for our good. He's holding back the best from us. He's not to be trusted. He doesn't love me. He can't be trusted for my complete happiness. Therefore, I must go get it myself. You see, this root produces two errors. It produces two errors. And, and Tim Keller quotes an old Scottish pastor. He's actually he's alive. He's, he's old, but he's still alive. Sinclair Ferguson, you may have heard of his name, in calling uh, these two errors unidentical twins from the same womb. And these twins are lawlessness and lawfulness. You may have heard them as legalism or antinomianism. We'll stick with lawlessness and lawfulness. But you see, lawfulness says, I have to meet God's demands to get Him to be good to me and get good from Him. Why? Because the root says, God's holding out on me. There's better for me. And if I keep all these rules, I will pull the lever, the divine cha-ching, and He will give it to me. Because I kept all the rules. That's lawfulness. Lawlessness says, I don't trust God's rules for my good. So I'll get good from God apart from God's way. I'll make my own laws. I'll determine what should be kept and what shouldn't be kept. I would argue that every sin known to man grows as fruit from this root of the unbelief of God's goodness to me and for me. Everything grows out of the disbelief that God is working for my good. He has my best intentions at heart. And all I have to do is obey Him. Hear Him and obey Him, we say, right? How do we define discipleship? Hear and obey. That's how Jesus defines discipleship. Hear, obey. He who hears these words of mine and does them is a wise man who builds his house on the rock, right? The rains and the flood come and they beat on that house and it cannot be torn down because it's been founded on the rock of hearing and obeying Jesus. All sin is fruit from the root of a disbelief in the goodness of God. And that was sown in Adam and Eve by the serpent in the garden. God's word is untrustworthy. He's holding out on you. And all you've got to do is go get it yourself. This rebellion, this root of all sin, leads us to our second observation. And that is, this rebellion gives birth to the counter-kingdom of the world system. This root of rebellion against God gives birth to the counter kingdom of what the Bible calls the world system. If you would, you gotta hold your place here in your Bible and, and uh, turn to a book called First John. It's toward the end of your Bible. It's like uh, you get the Hebrews, James, and then you'll see First Peter, Second Peter. And then 1 John. And if you get to 2 John, 3 John, Jude, and Revelation, you went too far. A tiny little book called 1 John. And John does something here. John defines for us what this world system is. And, and lest you think it's not defined in Genesis 3, I want to show it to you in 1 John. And we'll look back to Genesis 3 and see this counter kingdom clearly. In chapter 3. Now John's going to tell us in 1 John 5.19 that the one who runs this world system is none other than Satan himself. He's the one that is in charge of the world system. Now, the reason I tell you that, this is important. 
Some people misread that and they misunderstand what he means by world. You've got, you got to always interpret verses in the Bible based on the whole Bible. Right? Make sense? Like We don't even read the Chronicles of Narnia and interpret what happens in the last battle without understanding what happened in the magician's nephew, right? There's no such thing as the last battle if there's not the magician's nephew because there's anything to be made right if we don't go back and find out how Diggory messed it up, right? And so we understand just innately we've got to, in order for the last battle to make sense, we've got to read the magician's nephew, Right? It's just, it's the, it's how you learn. It's basic learning. Like, you can't speak fluent Spanish, nor read it unless you start with Senor Lanier's class and learn. Right? You gotta start somewhere. So we don't read 1 John 5, 19 and go, oh, Satan's in charge of the whole world. No. That's not what that means. 1 John 5.19 lets us know that Satan is in charge of a system. And we don't know what that system is. He's going to tell us in chapter 2. But just know, this world system, this counter kingdom introduced in chapter 3, verse 1, 4, 5, and 6, Genesis 3, is none other than Satan. And he is introducing something to counter God. And so Satan's in charge of this system. We see that in Genesis 3. He's the one introducing it. We see it in 1 John 5.19. So what is that system? What exactly is Satan running? What's his, what's his deal? What's he got going on? Well, let's look at 1 John 2, verse 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Now that makes no sense if he means like created order. Because that's not what that means. He told Adam and Eve to multiply and fill it, subdue it. It's good. What did God call created order? Very good. So, so he doesn't obviously mean created order. So... What is he talking about? He says, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. For all that is in the world, and here he defines that system that Satan's in charge of, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride in life, or the pride of life. A little fun note nugget here for you. Pride and life both have a definite article in, in the original language, meaning it's the pride of the life which is why some of your, your Bibles will say pride in possessions, because the life is more than like your heart beating and your lungs working and brains working. It's the life indicating the things of life grammatically, which is why some of your translations, again, will say pride in possessions, and some will say pride of life. It says it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Well, what's, what is it? What's from the world? Desires the flesh, desires the eyes, and pride of life. Note that. Back to Genesis 3. Notice what happens here in verse 6 and 7. So Satan has brought the temptation. He's introduced the counter kingdom. He's planted the root that God is holding out on you. He doesn't have your best at heart. You've got to go get it yourself. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desired to make one wise. Good for food. A desire of the flesh. A delight to the eyes. A desire of the eyes. Desire to make one wise. Pride in life. 
You see, what we need to remember, John is preaching from the text of the Old Testament. He's preaching from the Bible. He's not making this up. He is expounding upon what is already written. That this world system set up by Satan himself appeals to the body, the eyes, and the desire to have more in life. There's no doubt that John has in mind the birth of this counter-kingdom when he identifies it for his readers in 1 John. This counter-kingdom takes the root of sin. That is the root of all sin, the belief that God is holding out on us, and i got to go get it myself. And he, that is Satan, plays our created and good desires against the very desires that the Creator gave us. Now you've got to keep in mind, Food is not bad. The body is not bad. But when the body seeks to get its need apart from the God who made it to have need, it turns into sin because we seek our fulfillment somewhere other than the God who is to give it. Does that make sense? Because what was the whole temptation? God is holding out on you. You can have good, but you've got to get it yourself. He's not telling you everything. Go get it yourself. Disobey Him. I'm hungry. There's fruit. He said not to do it. So I'm going to bypass Him and go get it myself. Hunger isn't bad. The feeling of hunger apart from God's way is bad. Why? Because the means... Is not the food nor me, it's God who gives the food. So my desire is God who gives, not the food that He gives. So Satan plays our created desires against the very God who gave them to us. With the belief that He's holding out. God made flesh, and He made our flesh to delight in good. God made our eyes to see beauty. God made life to be enjoyed and fulfilled. My gosh, He gave them the entire earth to have babies in and fill it and multiply over and over and over and over and over and fill it, subdue it, play in it, have fun, walk with me. That's normal. He made life to be enjoyed and fulfilled. But the rebellion offered the fulfillment apart from God And thus, the perversion of the flesh, the perversion of the eyes, and the perversion of enjoyment of life. Give me some examples here. Because I know that that feels convoluted and it feels complicated. So let me give you some examples. Food is to be enjoyed and savored and point us to its creator and the giver of that food. In the counter kingdom, food is worshipped as an end in itself. Not as a means to an end. This is why Jesus will say things. Man does not live on bread alone. But by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God is a supernatural sustainer. He is the one that can make you live. He can make you die. So it's okay to feed the flesh. It's not okay for the flesh to find its enjoyment apart from God. Our women are to be delighted in and rightly appreciated for their beauty. 
In the counter kingdom, our women are exploited through visual stimulation. The delight of the eyes. Life is to be lived to its fullest and fully enjoyed. But in the counter kingdom, we seek to gather as much of the tokens of life and express our pride in what we get because we love the gathering of items and the items themselves above Christ who is to be enjoyed whether or not we have those items. Things, children, sports. And so therefore we invest in them as though they had some return. Rather than the God who is to be enjoyed in life. This is why you can travel the world and see believers with nothing happier than believers who have everything. Because pride is not had in what you get in life. Our joy is found in walking with God who gives happiness and joy as He walks with us apart from anything we get in this life. And so this counter kingdom is set up against the kingdom of God. The flesh is not evil, it's good. It is to be filled and satisfied. It is not to be worshipped. But what does the counter kingdom do? Worship this thing. Worship this body. Work out more than you spend time in God's Word. Paul even says it. Physical training has some value, but training of the soul has value in this life and the life to come. How many people spend more time feeding their soul than they do exercising their muscles? It's because we believe we're to get it all now. Maximize now. Maybe not. It could be a lie. It could be the counter kingdom saying, you've got to get it now. What good, Jesus said, is it if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? Because we can't worship this and have Jesus too. There's no such thing. And it goes both ways. Some of us spend more time eating than we do working out. And we delight in the food and we think our flesh grumbles, I need more, I need more. No, I need less. Because I think i got to get it now. It goes both ways. It's It's... Satisfy this. That's the counter kingdom. But the kingdom of God says, no, my sustenance is found in God. Man, the delight of the eyes. We're, we're made to see beauty. This is why people paint landscapes. Because you see Mount Everest up close and for real and you're like, yep, don't need an iPod. Don't need a game. Don't need TV. That's flipping awesome. You are made to see beauty. But what's the counter kingdom do? Takes your attention from what is innately beautiful to things that are not innately beautiful, but they're attractive on the surface and they have a shelf life and they die. And then you need the next fix, the next craze, right? Because I bought the counter kingdom, not the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? You see, the problem is the root of all sin introduces us to a counter kingdom. Which is why Jesus comes preaching in the Gospels the good news of the kingdom of God. It's because the establishment of God's kingdom and the supernatural rule of Christ is intended to draw our flesh, our eyes, and our enjoyment of life back into God's kingdom away from the world system. 
Which is why John is going to tell his readers there in 1 John, watch out, Satan runs that world. Watch out for these things. And man, we feel like if we talk about that stuff now that we turn into like joy killers. No, we're joy maximizers. God is a happy God and you were made for enjoyment. The question isn't enjoyment. The question is where do I get it? And Eve was told, see, God knows that the day you eat it, you're going to know what He knows and He doesn't want you to have that. So go get it yourself! Okay, okay. And so it turns itself into lawfulness or lawlessness. No rules whatsoever. I'm going to go get it regardless of God or if I just do more. If I just do more. If I just do more, I'm yanking the divine chain. He's got to pour it out on me. No. Both of those are twins, unidentical twins from the same womb of dissatisfaction with God. And that is where it is all rooted. Well, our kingdoms in conflict. Third observation, kingdoms are in conflict. We see in verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I, I, I read that and it's, it's sad and funny at the same time. Just incredibly sad that you used to play with God. And I know we don't say that because we have a false view of God. God delights in play. Just watch His created order. Watch trees sway in the wind. Watch a puppy. Watch a kitten. Watch baby animals before the reality of the curse sets in. Watch babies. You know what makes me absolutely giggle like a little baby child? is watching a baby laugh. God made that. He made that. He made that. And here they are running from the God they used to frolic with and enjoy and then hiding themselves. And here's the funny part, like they could. I think what's sad about us is we think if we ignore God, we think if we just don't talk to Him or we don't go to church or whatever, we can ignore the kingdom of God. But the reality is the all-knowing creator of the universe knows all things, even the secret things of the heart, the Bible tells us. So there's no hide. There's no hiding. But their kingdom's in conflict now. Man runs from God. And what is God going to do? He's going to call man back to himself. What does God do? Verse 9, He called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Now you've got to read that right. It's not that God doesn't know. It's a rhetorical question. God never asks you questions that He doesn't know the answer to. They're rhetorical To draw you to himself. Man runs from God. God calls man back to himself. Man disobeys God. God warns of the consequences of disobedience. The wages of sin is death. Man man misrepresents God. Man speaks lies about God. Man speaks untruths about God. They put false names on God. Because they get their theology from here. Not here. Man produces and fosters false gods that are created in the image of man and creation. We read in God's law that God defies images. Don't even make an image. You can't come close. 
J.I. Packer would say. I know you might not know who J.I. Packer is. He's a good old dead guy, incredible theologian who wrote Knowing God. It's a fantastic little book. It's a compilation of articles, doctrinal articles that were written for a magazine in the 70s. Every Christian should have it on their bookshelf. It's called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. It's a fantastic little book. And he's unpacking God's command not to make images. The reason? Nothing you can make can come close. And therefore it will misrepresent me, so don't even try. But man wants to create God in his image and God defies images. Because we all got our favorite Jesus, right? Our eight pound, six ounce baby Jesus. The Jesus with the mullet. And the tuxedo t-shirt, because, you know, he's got a party. He's like serious up front, party in the back, right? We got our favorite Jesuses, right? We got our white Jesus, our black Jesus, our Palestinian Jesus, our Russian Jesus. We got our, and we put another, and we, we create God in our image. And God says, don't do that. Know me. My word is a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. Right? Because we all like to make God to be for our cause. Be for our thing. Man believes lies about God. But God shouts that He is good and rewards those who seek Him. We got liberal lies and we got conservative lies. Lies that say God wants me to be rich and healthy. And then lies that say God wants me to be poor and miserable. Man believes lies about God. Whatever most suits his flesh, his eyes, and his pride. These kingdoms are constantly in conflict. These kingdoms are in conflict in your daily decision making. Think about your day. What vies for your attention? I promise you, the root is dissatisfaction in God and His concern for me and His best for me and in how I'm going to go get it. Flesh, my eyes, and pride in what I can accumulate for myself. But I want you to note as we wrap up and we conclude here that God bears witness to His goodness. See, the counter kingdom has been introduced. The counter kingdom has been introduced. Sin and death have now entered the world. Death has come because sin has come. And so sin will continue to produce death. And that root sin is disbelief and dissatisfaction in God. And it will only continue to produce death. Which, by the way, just observe life. Pursuit of lesser things always ends in emptiness, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And what do we do? We get in the cycle. We've got to go get it again or get a more intense experience than the last time. Never ends in satisfaction. Which is why when the new one comes out, what do we do? Sell heaven and earth and children to go get it. That's called death. See, death is sneaky. Death is sneaky. Death's never going to look you in the face and go, look at this, this is beautiful. You go, no, I'm going the other way. I mean, Satan doesn't show up going, hey, hey, God's right. You do this. All manner of junk's going to introduce and create order. This is going to be beautiful for you. Huh? No. Hey, mm, make you fill your stomach. Mm, it's pretty. Mm, you'll accumulate more knowledge. Mm, yeah. Man, death is never going to present itself as evil. It's always going to present itself as better for you. But 
But God bears witness about His goodness. You see, God's not going to let them leave the garden with the lie firmly entrenched in their minds. Because we see here in verse 14 to 19 that God pronounces sentence. You disobeyed. And now there are consequences. Now, when we study through the book of Genesis, we'll unpack these more. But there are now consequences. Things are going to be harder. You, man, wife, you're going to be at enmity with one another. Your desires, your desires aren't going to match anymore. This is, oh, that's, oh, I want to preach because this, this is why we have to work at marriage. That's why marriage isn't easy. This is why God gives us a picture of it in Ephesians 5, so that we have a blueprint off of which to live it and, and, and make it happen. And so there are consequences here. But God doesn't end the chapter on consequences. And by the way, He never does. The story of the Bible always leaves us pointing to Jesus. And we see that here. In verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God doesn't execute Adam and Eve. Remember I told you we'd come back to this. He doesn't execute Adam and Eve. He told them you're going to die. But God doesn't execute them. He said... They would die if they ate. And in one way they did die because the curse of death was introduced and they began to slowly die and would one day succumb to its power. But he didn't execute them on the spot. There was no summary execution. Why? Their first taste of death was one of an innocent creature taking the punishment for their error. Can you think of anything in history where God did that again? Jesus, who came and there was no error found in Him. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As a matter of fact, the rest of the Old Testament is going to take this theme of innocent people paying for sin. It's going to come in the form of kings who were good and were rewarded with evil for their goodness. You're going to see injustice. You're going to see all manner of evil perpetrated against good people. And it is there to point us to the ultimate, ultimate, ultimate injustice where the innocent Son of God comes and He takes on my sin and yours. No crime was found in Him. He was innocent before God and before men. And he was lied about and cheated and robbed. Yet God, being gracious to us, put him on a cross. And God killed Jesus. In order to pay for my sin and for yours. And he put him in a grave. And on the third day, the eternal Son of God rose, unlike these animals... To defeat death and defeat sin so that all of us who would find our hope in Christ would have all of our sin counted to Him and receive all of His righteousness. 
The end of Genesis 3 is pointing us to the cross. An innocent animal pays for their sin, and God covers their shame and their nakedness. And in Christ, our sin is paid for, and He covers our shame and takes care of our sin. This pattern set for us at the end of Genesis 3. And it is set, and it is set in stone, and it will continue. And it's to be a reminder that it would take innocent sacrifice to atone for our sin. And by the way, one that doesn't have to be repeated to be effective. Who would such sacrifice be? As John the Baptist would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jesus, the eternal Son of God who takes our sin. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will take your word and truly make it a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. I ask that you would take the devastating consequences of the rebellion and the pattern of the innocent taking the blame for the guilty and use that this morning to draw our hearts to Jesus. Father, I confess to you this morning that I'm awfully beset by the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And it is a constant battle. There's not a moment that the battle isn't raging. And I lose more times than I win. I agree with you that I deserve death and condemnation, but thank you for Jesus who you put in my place for my sin so that through faith in Jesus you would take my guilt and give to me perfection. Adopt me as a son into the family and give to me the inheritance of the world as a son of God. With Jesus as my big brother, I pray that you'd take that reality and sink it deep into the hearts of your people this morning. And may that reality of your kingdom dictate how we fight against the counter kingdom. Helps fight well. Lord, pray for some victories today and tomorrow. A little relief from the beatdown. And I trust there's some here who could use some relief from the beatdown. I do. So would you grant that in Christ that I would fight well against the counter kingdom and not believe those lies? When I pray this morning for maybe one that the gospel has dawned fresh on their heart this morning, the good news has broken through the counter kingdom and the lies and a hard heart and the result of sin. I pray that you would cause there to be life springing forth. I pray that you would bring them irresistibly into the kingdom. They would see, know, understand, and believe. And grant them faith to trust. And may we see new life.